0: Welcome to the Women's Wellness Psychiatry Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. I'm your host, Anna Glazer, MD, a reproductive and integrative psychiatrist here to help you make sense of the complex world of women's mental health. If your goal is to improve your emotional well-being, find fulfillment, and feel like your best self, you're in the right place. Welcome, my listener friends. Are you or someone you know suffering from a medical condition or symptoms that are long-standing and really hard to find the right treatment for? There are some illnesses that we can treat quickly, like an ear infection or a strep throat or even a broken bone. But then there are others that often have symptoms that are harder to treat, requiring a comprehensive and integrative approach. Symptoms like fatigue, brain fog, diagnoses like depression or autoimmune conditions. My guest today is a neuropsychiatrist who specializes in these conditions and has written a guidebook to help you, the reader, heal. Dr. Morgan is a neuropsychiatrist and integrative psychiatrist. She's also a board-certified neurologist and understands the complex interplay between the structural hardware and the emotional software in the brain. She takes an evidence-based integrative approach to personalized medical care, providing both Pharmacologic and non pharmacologic treatments, and draws upon many forms of healing to tailor a treatment plan that's unique to a particular patient's needs. Dr. Juliet Morgan completed her training at UCSF and continues to be an assistant clinical professor there. She co authored the book Long Illness A Practical Guide to Surviving, Healing, and Thriving, which focuses on conditions such as long COVID. The book will help you build a foundation with your medical team, address both physical and mental health symptoms, and share holistic solutions to help you feel better. I really enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Morgan, and I hope that you will as well. So please take a listen. And if you are a clinician and want to learn more about integrative psychiatry, particularly in women's mental health, please go to psychiatryfellowship.com and sign up for training today. All right, Dr. Morgan, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. And before we dive into the heart of the topic for today, which is long illness and long COVID, as per your your book, tell us a little bit, tell listeners a little bit about yourself and your background.
1: Yeah. so, So I started out just wanting to be Like a family medicine doc, I wanted to take care of the whole person. The whole family had these ideas that I was going to take care of someone from birth to death. And then I was in medical school and became just transfixed by neuroanatomy and really into the hardware of the brain. And so I started neurology residency. was going to do behavioral neurology, but then again, felt like the siren call of all of the software and psychological change and how there's this dynamic interplay between hardware and software in the brain. And so I decided to do a second residency in psychiatry so that I could understand that aspect of of the brain. So I consider myself kind of a whole brain doctor, hardware, software, and I take care of people for whom, for many of them, there are, you know, issues going on in both. And we're trying to understand that complex interplay between the two. And then I felt like really the conventional biomedical skill set that I was learning was insufficient. So I added on then an integrative medicine fellowship. So it's a mouthful, but you'd probably call me an integrative neuropsychiatrist, but just a human being, a physician, I'd try and understand as much as I can about a
0: brain and a person. And that's how it began. So it's it's great to think about you know the fact that you integrate both of these parts of the brain, which is it's interesting that in conventional medicine we separate out the neurology and the psychiatry. You use a couple of terms that I don't know if everyone is familiar with, so maybe you could define them a little bit. You use the term behavioral neurology. You also talked about neuropsychiatry and then integrative medicine. So if you can define those, what those mean for our listeners.
1: So behavioral neurology should really mean like, how does behavior relate to the structure of your brain? But in our conventional fields, behavioral neurology is usually the care of people who have dementia. And so that's a population that I'll work with and that I certainly care about and work with now, but it didn't become my primary specialty. Um, Chiatry, and some people lump nurse psychiatry in with behavioral neurology too. So some people will call them the same thing, which is also probably fine but it's people who come from either a psychiatry background would call themselves neuropsychiatrists. People who come from a primary neurology background would call themselves behavioral neurologists. But I don't know any behavioral neurologists who really practice neuropsychiatry in the same way. And neuropsychiatry is, you know, it's pretty broad and expansive. Again, I think about it as people who, who have a concern that is, is more than just psychological, which is, I think... The Actually, the majority of people have, you know, the body and mind are linked. And there's, I, I think, always, it, you know, interesting, interesting aspects of someone's, the structure of someone's brain to consider. But it can uh, span anyone who has post concussive syndrome, something like long COVID, where it's, You know, headaches, brain fog, fatigue, plus depression, anxiety, inattentive symptoms, someone who has, again, another structural issue, like something like multiple sclerosis, where they have lesions in the brain, but then it might look like bipolar disorder. That's an example of someone else I could care for in neuropsychiatry. But there are all different kinds of patients who come to me who want to know more and want to investigate more about kind of what could be going on with the
0: hardware, not just the software or want both. And you mentioned kind of maybe branching out beyond the conventional approach that we have in the biomedical model and and taking a more integrative approach, which is also near and dear to my own heart. Tell me a little bit more about what that means in in the field of neuropsychiatry. Yeah. So
1: it just felt like an insufficient toolkit because for many, many people, for many different reasons, conventional biomedications aren't a fit. And kind of thinking expansively, broadly about about what kind of workup someone might need beyond what we we, we might just have, and kind of our very very conventional biomedical literature has always been intriguing to me. I am not a functional medicine doctor. We can talk more about what that is, but I do think I order some more testing than kind of conventional psychiatrists, biomedical psychiatrists do, and. Integrative medicine, in my mind, just brings in many different forms of healing into the interaction with the patient. It's a co-creation of a plan that is tailored to that person. But in my mind, I do try and keep like an evidence base behind my recommendations. That's the same with our book. Our book is researched. It's evidence-based. And where we don't have evidence, it better be pretty low risk and pretty low toxicity, including wallet toxicity. So we're not going to be recommending things that are expensive with no debt. So that is,
0: yeah, integrative medicine. Yeah, that's great. And I, so thank you for also bringing up the book. Tell us a little bit about what was the impetus for writing that? I mean, you're, you just mentioned so many different subspecializations. I'm sure you have plenty of patients that you're taking care of. You're quite busy. And you decided to write this, this really kind of evidence-based and comprehensive book. Tell us a little bit about the impetus for that.
1: Yeah. So Dr. Jobson and myself, my co-author, we ran the first like long COVID group, we think in the country, deep in the pandemic. And we were just learning as we would go. And we're both integrative medicine doctors. So it was an integrative medicine recovery skills group. Initially, it was just COVID recovery. We didn't even know what long COVID was. And as we were working with this population, I mean, she's a palliative care medicine doctor. So it was like we were checking all of our boxes. It was like pain, fatigue, brain fog, anxiety, depression, dysautonomia. just like ran the That's what we do, putting our two minds together. And so we began to put together a resource book for our patients. And then we started putting together a workbook for our patients. And then as we looked at it, we were like, oh this is book. And then I was still taking care of all the other patients I take care of. Patients with lipids, patients with MS, patients with post-stroke depression, patients with post-concussive syndrome. And as we were discussing this with the publisher, we all felt like, why are we limiting it to this one group of people? And so we tried to make it more expansive. I'll, I'll give you a good example. So I've referenced patients with MS twice. What is MS? We think it's probably a post-infectious illness, right? We know that most cases of MS, we believe are a large subset, are due to secondary EDV infection, mono-infection. So it's kind of post-infectious syndrome. So it's like, why are we separating out? This is a book for one post-infectious syndrome, but not the rest. So that's how we ended up including a more, uh, yeah, making it a more expansive, inclusive book.
0: And so who's the target audience for this particular book?
1: Yeah. The target audience is really anyone who is experiencing lingering symptoms in their body that aren't going away on an expected time. And they have a diagnosis for it. Maybe they don't. Maybe they have. They've been living with this a long time. Maybe it's only a few weeks or months and they're trying to figure out, you know, mostly it's people who have read about either long COVID or other post-infectious illnesses, Chronic or post treatment Lyme, again, you know, chronic or or reactivated EBV or LRD, any of these kind of overlap conditions who are usually not pleased with the way their care is going, who are trying to get a kind of handbook for, okay, how do I think about this? What are the possible roots of what's going on with me? How do I build a medical team? How do I advocate for my care? What is illness identity? What's disability? Am I disabled? Do I, are there accommodations I might need? For some people, that's a yes. Others, it's a no. And then exploring common symptoms. I, I think I just said, so, you know, headaches, fatigue, shortness of breath, and then going into mental health, which is, should be kind of like a bit of a sampler in terms of exposing people to all different types of psychotherapy modalities that are behavioral we can talk about what those are and then some narrative medicine to help people to integrate their story to understand their story and anyways and then a lifestyle medicine section which goes over all the different diets like what are the diets we use we could talk about the diet that i recommend most in my clinic the mind diet but like what are the different data's behind diets like what's detox in the body what's movement in the body So we tried to make it a handbook that somebody could pick up and it could guide them, could be like having us in your corner, having us in the room with you as you're
0: moving forward on this. It can be a very painful journey. And so many different directions for us to to go in our conversation based on, on what you just said. One of the places that I want to emphasize is something that you briefly mentioned, which is that a lot of patients who have a chronic or long illness... Don't necessarily feel satisfied with the kind of care that they've received, and that is definitely a theme that I've seen quite a bit with my own patients. Whether it's someone who has uh, who's had Lyme infection, someone who has you know post COVID symptoms, whatever it might be, can you share with us a little bit more? And maybe looking at it from the the mental health component, the psychological, maybe the sociological aspects of that particular concern, and, and maybe others you would like to to mention as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that our medical system is not built to really care for people and certainly not built to care for people in a way that people need to be cared for when they have a condition that is poorly understood, that involves a lot of suffering, that doesn't always have answers, that requires time. And so, you know, people who are disappointed with their care, you're just not alone and in Gosh, the majority of cases, like I'm taking care of these lovely people where it isn't something personal, but it can feel deeply personal. It can feel that someone doesn't want to care for you, which it's just we have a medical system that's not built to really hold, hold these illnesses. So there are all different reasons people can't access care. Care can be very hard to access and people are working on it, but, but. I would say that in our book, we do try and lay out some lower cost resources for people who are trying to navigate how to access care. There are some interesting like startups that are, I just heard about like UCSF Palliative Care is like doing a cool new startup, which is kind of lower fee palliative care counseling, which is cool. So people are are working on it, but too
0: slowly. Yeah. And certainly there's so many different conditions that we've talked about. One of the ones that I think a lot of listeners are particularly interested in is this kind of long COVID and what that means from a cognitive perspective, from a psychological and psychiatric perspective. Can you help listeners sort of understand a little bit more about what is long COVID? What, you know, what are some of the newest understandings that we have about the condition? Sure.
1: So after an acute COVID infection, vaccinated or not, many people will have lingering symptoms. For the majority of people, well, depends on how you look at the data, but for many, many people, those symptoms will resolve. But there's a subset of people for whom that suffering continues. And they experience, you know, across the board, they'll experience this really debilitating fatigue and then brain fog, which we can talk more about. Brain fog can be so many different things, so many of our contributions to brain fog. We have a brain ch- fog chapter in the book that goes over also, you know, when to really be concerned about something like the d- dementia process, which on the whole, the brain fog in long COVID is, is not a precursor to dementia. Is not. It. But we have to be really careful, especially with our older adults, people over the age of 65, to make sure we're really screening them cognitively. Other things like shortness of breath depression, anxiety, hair loss, joint pain, the list is a very exhaustive list of potential long COVID symptoms. And, you know, in my experience, and as you look at the literature, many people get better. There's a very small subset of people who do not. And, you know, we continue to work as hard as we can. There's emerging treatments. There's a Paxlovid trial going on right now. We're all kind of watching really closely. I mean, people are thinking about all kinds of things. Do we want to reduce fat stores with something like Ozempic to, because that's a potential reservoir of the virus? Is that something I'm doing in my practice? Maybe there there are plenty of things in the works that we're awaiting in terms of treatment. So there's, we don't have one clear mechanism. So the three is that it's uh, this immune dysregulation. And you know, I'm going to earmark. We're going to talk a little bit about mass cell activation syndrome. So I'm going to asterisk there, so it can go as a part of this immune dysregulation. It's a pro-inflammatory stage. We know there can be an increase in inflammatory markers in the brain. There was a biobank data study that looked not as good, and then another one that looked a little better in terms of atrophy in the brain after COVID infection. I mean, all of our brains are shrinking all the time, unfortunately, uh, but we do think there's a, a bit of an acceleration in. The smell center of the brain, the olfactory projections, and in these mesial limbic structures, these deep, deep structures related to mood, anxiety, predominantly kind of anxiety, fight or flight, that can have more atrophy. And that's what I often see. I often see in people who have had long COVID, who were like, well, I was a little anxious before, but now I have new panic. Now I have rip-roaring panic attacks. Makes sense from a neuroanatomic standpoint. There's some vascular theory. There's a dysbiosis component where we think that there's some disruption and the body's bacteria. So we don't have one answer. And it, you know, for me, and I know for Dr. Jobson as well, we try and look at kind of the whole of the person to try and figure out like, what are the, what are the variables that we can adjust? What can we help someone with? And, you know, potentially what's gone undiagnosed and
0: where can we, can we move, move someone's care forward? It's interesting to, to look at, you know, sort of the timeline of some of these things, especially because so much data is emerging on almost a weekly, weekly basis, you know, new, new publications in this particular field. And I, I certainly know a number of my own patients who, who have these kinds of symptoms. And then, you know, maybe it's at six months, maybe it's at nine months, maybe it's at a year that they potentially start to feel better, which can be a really long time for for a lot of folks. And I think it's also interesting how dynamic this particular field is, because we're just, you know, we're just learning so much about it. Can you speak to that dynamic nature of it a little bit? And how do you even keep up?
1: Yeah. So So I was telling you before the start of the podcast that it is, you know, Every three months, I probably do an exhaustive review of the literature just to make sure there are things I'm not missing. And then, you know, patience, it's a, it's humbling seeing people. And I'm always learning more despite, you know, very, very long training. I'm always learning more, reading more. Um, it's very, very dynamic. I mean, I wish that there were just as many publications about. Lyme. I wish there were just as many things coming out about EBV. I wish there were just as many coming out about EDS and connective tissue disorders. That's where I feel saddened, where I'm like, there's just as much suffering. It's just not, that's not the like suffering du jour. But, but it is, it's very dynamic and it's going to be teaching us a lot about post infectious syndromes and, and how to treat them. But I've always like, I've gone to the literature twice today already.
0: It's like 4.30. And I think you, I mean, you mentioned a number of conditions and in almost all of the ones that you've mentioned, there is a predominance in the female population. And, you know, this is the the women's wellness psychiatry podcast. We talk a lot about things that tend to be much more predominant and prevalent in in women. And that's the case for so many of the different conditions that you mentioned. Any thoughts on that or anything else that you'd like to expand on that particular aspect?
1: Yeah. So in the book, we try and, you know, acknowledge racial and gender bias and and disparate health disparities. And there is a big skew of unfortunately long COVID more prevalent in women. And we even talked about, you know, that there's this association between endometriosis. There was like a prospective study that looked at women with endometriosis. Looks like just endometriosis puts you at higher risk of developing long COVID. So people who and we know people who've suffered from other overlap long illnesses and are, are at risk probably because of the same underlying vulnerabilities. abilities. But I mean, I, I see, unfortunately on COVID, you know, across the board, but more, more prevalent in women.
0: Yeah. And I think to, to your point, you know, sort of what is the, the, underlying issue that might be contributing to all of these things that's kind of pushing, you know, because you, you had mentioned, for example, the inflammatory hypothesis or, you know, any of these other things that can contribute to you know, the fact that we have higher rates of depression in women. What's, you know, the inflammatory hypothesis of depression or the inflammatory hypothesis of a number of these other conditions. I think you had mentioned also, and I, I really like sort of the practical nature of integrative medicine, the fact that there's a lot of tools that can be harnessed. I'd love for us to talk a little bit more about some of the tools that you mentioned. You mentioned particular type of behavioral therapy. You mentioned some nutritional interventions, maybe some nutraceuticals. What, Where would you like to go with that? What are some interventions that you think individuals okay. might find most helpful?
1: Well, maybe I'll provide some of the kind of more unique ones that I think are very neuropsychiatry. So one piece of, I know this is like kind of taking a bit of a turn, but but one big piece of long COVID can be actually migraine, migraine phenotype. Um, which can be part of that brain fog, sometimes a feeling of disequilibrium where people feel a little unsteady headaches, but sometimes not a lot of headaches and can also contribute to mood. So making sure that we're really checking for so- anything that looks migraines, because we have some really nice natural products that reduce the frequency of migraines to me, vitamin B2 and magnesium. That can be really potent, effective and important to add on and just think about that piece of someone's care. Certainly we think about mindfulness practices. Mindfulness is anti inflammatory, can be useful in helping with people who have a kind of nervous system imbalance. It, there are additional considerations with somebody who has dysautonomia, but thinking about mindfulness practices, thinking about, you know, anxiety is very pro inflammatory. So thinking about all different ways of. Using psychological approaches to decrease anxiety and and treat depression, can you know? And I think integrative treatment is also using psychotropics. And we, it's so interesting how it weaves in together. We know like fluvoxamine is, which is an antidepressant, SSRI, is anti-inflammatory, maybe antiviral. So thinking about adding on, like I'm adding on antidepressants in patients with long COVID often because I, I just think they're anti-inflammatory and it can be supportive of mood. But I'm also thinking about that aspect. Yeah, other things, you know, a lot of my long COVID patients end up having like lower lower B12 levels, lower RBC folate levels, thinking about underlying mutations and MTHFR if those levels are are lower, just the body's ability to take folic acid, B2, B6, B12, and actually like integrate it and use it and make it available for your body to make neurotransmitters. So making sure we're checking that box, thinking about ferritin. I'm sure you think a lot about iron too. I think a lot about iron because, you know, you need iron to make serotonin, dopamine. You need iron to regulate GABA. Thinking about someone's iron status, I like a little higher ferritin level, I think, than like other people. And then, yeah, thinking about the right diet for the person. So we talk about gut dysbiosis, making sure somebody's had the right treatment if they're not pooping well to make sure that they're getting evaluated. Many patients along COVID have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, which is a part of a gut dysbiosis. But figuring out diet, we can talk about mind diets, the most common diet that I recommend in my clinic. But that's not a SIBO diet. Making sure we're ruling that up. And, and then also making sure someone's been evaluated, at least screened for mast cell activation syndrome, which is pretty common. Also, I'm seeing it more and more in long COVID. And it was like a nice nature paper out a couple of months ago that also acknowledged it, which I was really thankful for that it's just becoming more mainstream. Although still the diagnosis is hard to make and it aren't as many people treating it as I would like.
0: Can you tell listeners a little bit about what that, what that term means?
1: Yeah. So MCAS or muscle activation syndrome, if you are living in the kind of long COVID sphere, is probably something that has come up. And it is this issue with the allergic system in the body. I'll tell you, I am not an MCAS specialist, but I have become someone who has to like screen for it because I just find it so hard to get people to screen for it. And it, it, we just see it, you know, and I I diagnose it and then refer it out. But so it's basically you have these mast cells in your body, which are these allergic cells that have histamine granules in them. So histamine is this like allergy um, substance, this, this part of your allergy system that when these mast cells open up, it can cause a whole host of signs and symptoms in the body. And they end up degranulating inappropriately, these mast cells and activating inappropriately. And so people who have MCAS will have usually POTS, dysautonomia, all kinds of allergic symptoms. Classically in classic biomedicine is somebody who has repeated episodes of anaphylaxis. But we know now from the work of Dr. Afrin that, and you know, other work going on overseas, that it, it can be a more heterogeneous presentation. So somebody who has allergic symptoms, skin symptoms, often like little bumps under their skin, skin dystrophins, rashes. And who has dysautonomia, mood symptoms, GI symptoms, it's usually kind of itis, inflammation all over the body that you want to at least screen, make sure somebody's had a tryptase, screening tryptase level, which is got to make sure that goes on ice. If you get a tryptase level drawn, you look at the person, the phlebotomist who is lovely, and you say, please make sure that goes right on ice, because otherwise it's uninterpretable. And then also screening plasma histamine. There's a, a more expanded workup, but Here's where it's a little hard because if it comes back negative, it doesn't necessarily mean somebody doesn't have a cas. And the way to treat it is you blockade H1 and H2 receptors, which is usually pretty low risk. Someone can be trialed on something like Zyrtec and Pepsid and a couple of other supplements that can support them. And you know people usually can tell pretty quickly at that. Is helpful or not, but screening screening for MCAS. and again, that's something where I really like partnering with a great integrative internist because I I would love to have like you know somebody else managing the MCAS piece, but it, it's it, it it comes up. I've diagnosed already, like confirmed on labs four times this in the past three months. So mm-hmm. it comes
0: up. Yeah, I mean, just in general, the the role of various kind of immune inflammatory processes that can impact the, you know, our bodies and minds in so many different ways. And it's interesting because I think it's it's great that you've found collaborators and, you know, partners in internal medicine, for example, for treating these kind these these patients. Because I think one of the frustrations often is, you know, feeling a little bit of, of an outsider, certainly in, in kind of broader medicine and academic medicine for a lot of these kinds of conditions where the clinician might just feel like, you know, I have this patient and I'd like to, to work with a, a team to help this patient, but not necessarily finding that collegiality.
1: Yeah, I think medicine is a team sport and it doesn't always, you know, I don't always Find somebody great to take care of the patient, and it's really disappointing. But I'm somebody where, like, I'm sending out emails, I'm calling people's voicemails to try and get in touch with people because I really do want us to be on the same page, and I want people to know like this is, this is a patient who's cared about and being watched. But in the book, we try and you know help people to understand who could be on your medical team, what's the workup that I might need, you know, how do I how I build this, how do I advocate for this because. We're really lucky here in the Bay Area, just so many specialists and sub-specialists, but the, for the majority of people all over the world, that's not the case. And people have to do more self-advocacy than they should have to.
0: Yeah. And I think you mentioned also just some of the tools that you discuss in your book are ones that are maybe more accessible, both logistically and financially, than, than others. I think you had mentioned, you know, maybe some nutraceuticals, maybe the MIND diet. Can you share with us a little bit more about some of the nutraceutical options and how to make a good choice there, as well as the MIND diet that you referred to?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one thing I would say about natural products and nutraceuticals is it's very, very easy to end up on like 30 of them. And, you know, usually I recommend starting something and really noticing if it's helping giving it a good trial, I usually recommend ending the bottle, finishing the bottle. But if it's not helpful, to not continue it. There should be a notable benefit in your body in order for it to be continued. By the way, are you okay? There's like somebody really loud in my waiting room. Can you hear that? Can't, no, we can't hear it on, on the fence. Um, so You know, the majority of natural products are not regulated, unfortunately. And so you do want to make sure there's some bare minimum oversight. So that means any natural product that I'm recommending has the GMP certification. So that's good manufacturing practices. And you do want to, sometimes can be hard to find. You got to like Google and Amazon, you got to check in the search field. But GMP is going to let you know that the actual manufacturing, somebody's been looking over it. Something that I recommend for all practitioners is, is consumer labs. I don't know if you're a big consumer labs fan, but making I mean, sure... You know, I, I check it all the time. Oh, yes, this is this the best? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But making sure that what's in your products is actually what it, you know, what it advertises. And then, you know, there there's a couple of different classes of natural products. I think people are thinking about it in long COVID. You know, there's broadly anti-inflammatory. Natural products, and then you know, in my clinic, lots of natural products for mood, which I'm sure you're talking about all the time. It sounds like on your podcast, which aren't going to be any any different. But to make sure that you're not staying on something unless you know it's effective and it's helping, and to always be kind of reassessing whether it's, it's worthwhile because those are they're expensive, and and want to make sure something's really helping.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you had also mentioned, you know, another intervention. Like the mind diet. Can you tell us a little bit more about yeah. that? So the reason I I bring up the
1: mind diet is just there's so many different diets. And, and that's it's just the one that comes up most often in my practice because people are often talking about cognitive issues. And it's the most neuroprotective diet that I know of. So big, big study. Hundreds of people looked at people who adhered to the diet and didn't adhere to the diet. People who adhered to the diet did better on their neuropsych testing, their neurocognitive testing looked on average 7.5 years younger. So it's, I think, you know, from the way that I interpret literature, it's the diet where I'm like, I think this is the most neuroprotective. It is basically just the Mediterranean diet plus dark leafy greens every day, which I find hard, dark leafy greens every single day. And then, you know, berries two to three days a week, always making sure there's a corporation of berries. And then all the other core principles of Mediterranean diet, cooking with olive oil and nut butter, you know, fish twice a week, very little red meat, almost no sugar, no or minimal fried foods, lots of whole grains, lots of vegetables, fruits. We know, though, that in a head to head trail, my diet does better than Mediterranean diet. Mediterranean diet does not have the same protective effect in staving off progression of dementia. So that's usually the diet that I'm recommending is that a diet that comes up in your clinic?
0: We talk a lot about kind of the anti- anti-inflammatory diet and similar to the Mediterranean diet, really some great data on that in terms of mood and depression. And I think, you know, it, it's challenging in, in today's day and age to, to be able to eat in that kind of way, especially in this country.
1: I completely agree. And it's more than anything, just moving towards vitality in. And sometimes that means adhering to a diet like that. Sometimes it doesn't. And for everyone, it,
0: it can look different. Yeah, yeah. What's the role of movement, of physical activity in terms of you know either managing symptoms, cognitive symptoms, neuropsychiatric symptoms, whether it's in long COVID or some of these other conditions? Because that is something, and that's an intervention that I talk with a lot of my patients about. yeah.
1: You know, I have a lot of colleagues in integrative medicine who give exercise prescriptions out, which I I love. You know, many of my patients, so with dysautonomia, movement's really hard. Yeah. So we're thinking about, you know, there are different protocols. Levine protocol, I've had a number of my patients on, but different ways of slowly, slowly progressing movement being really... Cognizant of your body and just making sure that you are, you know, working ideally with a PT who's really familiar with dysautonomia and can help you to progress in a safe way. So, apart from dysautonomia, I mean, any movement is good movement. We know that, like, it feels like every week there's like a new article that's like, we thought it was 10,000 steps, but actually 4,000 steps are great. Or like, yeah, only these seven minutes, actually, four minutes, like, really any little thing helps. And it's hard to incorporate movement. (laughs) When you haven't been moving, you know, I think about like Newton's laws, like an object in motion yeah. remains, an object in rest remains. be rest, really hard to mobilize that in your body, especially if you have pain. So trying to fi- find a realistic kind of progress, not perfection, way of incorporating movement that feels good in the body. You know, for my patients with like EDS, it's often like yoga is not a good thing for them, right? So that's not going to be a good exercise prescription, but something like, you know, something that stabilizes the joints. So like light weights can be great. So for the, when safely done, talk about all kind of the ergonomics of that, but you know, everybody's different and I love it when somebody wants to talk about incorporating more movement. Doesn't happen
0: as, as much. As much as we like. Yeah. Yeah. So. Going back to to the book, it sounds like it's just really accessible, almost kind of in a workbook type of format. Can you share anything else that you would like to share with listeners about takeaways or pearls, whether it's in long illness or even more generally speaking, the work that you do?
1: Yeah. So in the book, I would say that it's kind of like a buffet meal. So we tried to put a whole lot of dishes in there. Even, you know, we have a traditional medicines chapter. Both of us work really closely with Ayurvedic practitioners, with East Asian medicine practitioners. And, and so we tried to put in some concepts from traditional medicine, some exercises from traditional medicine. But, you know, there's just all different, all different things in there. There's biomedic, there's standard biomedical approaches. There's mindfulness practice. There's journal journaling prompts. There's some psychological exercises to kind of pick it up and explore
0: and choose your own adventure. And also that description of of the book as a buffet where you can kind of just, you know, take as much as you like from any of the different dishes.
1: Yeah. And the idea is, you know, there's, for example, in our trauma chapter, which, you know, having an illness, it's chronically invalidated that for many people it feels like in is, is invisible disability. That, you know, they're chronically not getting the help they need. Maybe they've had hospitalizations that have been painful and confusing. They've had procedures that were really distressing and have revved up a kind of trauma response. They may have pre existing trauma or just completely new trauma. But in that chapter, we try and incorporate some, you know, just general grounding exercises. And then we go into internal family systems work. Like, what is that? What is IFS? And, you know, I've had a couple of readers who were like, oh, this seems like it could be part of my trauma recovery. And so that's the idea of the buffet meal is you're like, oh, I like those green beans. I'm going to buy, you know, the whole green bean factory. And they'll go from there and kind of connect with an IFS practitioner. So. That's how the book is laid out. It's kind of all the things that we go through, but it's amazing. Like now, even from when the manuscript was initially published, it feels like there's even, even more that we're exploring and, and learning about. Again, it's a very dynamic field, but I think all of the blueprints, like everything is, is there for people to be able to kind of just build and build upon what they have that you might have really comprehensive care plan right now. But I think that there's always more that can be added in or you might be starting from scratch. It's a really nice handbook.
0: Wonderful. And so if someone was interested in purchasing a copy, where would they go? And if someone was interested in either connecting with you or finding a neuropsychiatrist, where would they go?
1: Yeah. So you can buy our book on Amazon, it's also on Audible, just really nice for people who either have brain fog or don't just don't have the bandwidth to pick up the book itself. But it's also available anywhere that you purchase your books. We have a website, longilness.com. We have an Instagram handle that's not very active, but it we have one. Well hashtag long illness and we do post. We do like little book events and things. I'm here in San Francisco. I see people locally and, uh, you know, connecting with neuropsychiatrists. I, there are kind of neuropsychiatric organizations that you can tap into to try and find referrals, but there, it's, there aren't very many of us who are double boarded, but they're, you know, off the top of my head, there are a couple of people who do something similar in the city. But, you know, the way I feel is that sometimes it's really important to see a specialist in this area, but more than anything, it's just good to find someone where you feel seen and known. That's the most important piece. And then they can go exploring for you. They can reach out to me if they want to discuss your case and get some more insight. But but to, to move towards, you know, someone who you feel knows you, cares for you, wants to help you is probably the most important thing, more important than
0: seeing a subspecialist. I think that makes a lot of sense, you know, having that connection and that rapport it's therapeutic in and of itself. I think it's a the, the
1: very, very big piece. Yeah. Especially with long illness, again, to have someone who will hold that with you. I think about, you know, how scary the experience is to walk alone and how just comforted and reassured and how vital it is that people not be alone.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you so much for sharing your expertise today with with our listeners we'll be sure to include the links that you mentioned for for anyone listening would like to purchase a copy and thanks again for taking the time oh it's my pleasure thanks for having me absolutely thanks for joining me for this week's episode as you know my goal is to share with you the most helpful information that moves you towards emotional well-being if you have suggestions or questions i'd love to hear those And I also always appreciate a rating that will help others find this valuable content. I'm looking forward to connecting with you again next week. Please note that while I am a clinical doctor, this podcast is not a substitute for nor should be taken as medical advice. No specific health advice is being given on this podcast and no physician-client relationship is created by you listening to this podcast. All information provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only.